So every founder and CEO has a voice. They founded their company for a reason. Most people that found their companies, you know, are overcoming a ton of adversity to found their companies and to raise capital. So use your voice and whichever medium that works for you. If it's giving panel sessions, if it's being on the news, if it's writing articles, doing a content blog, like you said, it depends on the type of company and what they're selling and, you know, the medium, but you have a voice and use it. And that's the most important thing. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaS Talk, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Hey everyone, it's Alex here. As you may well know by now, myself and the Sastock team are heading to the land of the lucky next month, that's Ireland, for the ultimate SAS festival, if we say so ourselves, Sastock Dublin 2023. Last year was so good, we can't believe we're back at it next month already. The 16th to the 18th of October, we are bringing 6,000, this is 6,000 SaaS founders, investors, operators, and SaaS professionals together for an incredible three days of workshops, networking, parties, connecting, kind of the same thing as networking, learning, more meetings than you'll, you'll know, uh, founders getting invested, so much going on. Uh, more Irish crack than we'll know what to do with. Uh, get 20% of your SaaS stock tickets with code SASREV. That's S-A-A-S-R-E-V. And we'll see you there at SaaS Dublin 2023. Okay, welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show. I'm your host, Alex Sumer, CEO, founder of SaaS Stock. Delighted to be joined today by Angelie Mullins, who is the former CEO, uh, CMO uh, at Latana uh, Brand Tracking and uh, you know, commercial, uh, I, I guess, kind of uh, uh, expert extraordinaire um, and uh, delighted to have uh, uh, Anjali on the show. Welcome, Anjali. Thanks, Alex. Nice to be here. Uh, whereabouts are you dialing in from? Berlin, which I would love to say is sunny, but not today, but uh, Berlin. Not today. Has summer been okay? It started well, and then it started raining, and now we're all wondering if summer will be here, so we're crossing our fingers. Okay. Well, I, th- I think like we mentioned before we were recording, UK is having uh, quite the summer so far, but uh, Wimbledon uh, is coming soon, the, the, the tennis tournament, and uh, typically that sees uh, a bit of rain uh, come in uh, to, to, to break up the play, but uh, we, we will see, we will see, but uh, in, enjoying it so far. And, Hopefully those watching the video will see my slightly sun-kissed uh, complexion, which was very red uh, for the last few days. Um, but we, we were also just talking about uh, the dangers of sunscreen. Not the, not the sun, but sunscreen. So that's a whole other podcast, which we haven't even created yet, so, but uh, maybe never will. Um, but uh, Anjali, so uh, I guess for those that don't know you, um, let's get to know you. Like, who is Anjali Mullins? All right. So hello, everyone. I'm Anjali. Of course, I'm in Berlin, but I actually have a huge international experience in repertoire. Started my career with the big tech companies, Amazon, Intuit, GoDaddy, marketing, go-to-market, commercial leadership, international expansion, and had quite a ride, as you do, um, in the larger companies, and then decided to move into the scale-up world. 
So, you know, starting, there was another one, uh, Crimson, down in Australia, and then, of course, most recently with Latana Brand Tracking, leading marketing and commercial. But I really focus on go-to-market and digital and revenue growth. i got some questions there. So why, why the initial career with the big companies? Some great ones there, Amazon, Intuit, GoDaddy. This is like, looks great on the CV, and I'm, I'm sure it's been much more than that. So doing the big companies now, the, the, the slightly smaller ones. Uh, so what, why did you, uh, I guess, kind of first of all, pick that part? You know, it's really interesting. It's kind of like, I want to say, 15 years ago when everybody wanted to work for the big finance houses. And after you graduated university, you went to work for Goldman Sachs and that was your career. And then it transitioned into tech and everyone wants to work for the big tech companies. And they think that that's the big cup. And so I think just when I was doing my career at that stage of my career, that was the cup. But what you realize is once you get into those companies is you don't have the full breadth of ownership and your learning curve is not as steep. When you look at these companies, they have thousands of employees. Departments are super highly matrixed. And yes, you do get fantastic experience. Like you said, it looks great on the CV, but the learning curve is not the same as with startups. And also for your own career, you have to decide if you're going to be a builder or you're going to be an optimizer and there's different levels of leadership and different flavors. And so for myself, I'm a builder type of personality and I really like to grow things. And it's, it's difficult to do once, once you enter you know, a huge corporation like that. So I would say a great foundation of experience. You learn a lot and you see a lot, but at some point in your career, you need to make a decision on you know, which track you want to go on. And I guess, given where you're at now, your preference is that, you know, being a builder and the smaller companies. Exactly right. I love to see that. Yes, I think it's actually harder to do. But at the same time, I just think the success is so much more fruitful um, after you've built something from scratch or have been able to scale something. And um, you're not originally from Berlin. So where, where, where are you originally from? Where's home? I'm from sunny San Diego, actually. What's the best thing about San Diego? Oh my gosh. It's, they call it the Greece of America because it has some of the best weather on the planet, some of the best food. So anyone who's watching that loves Mexican food, it's some of the best Mexican food in all of the United States. It has a big surf culture. So anyone that likes to be in the ocean, surfing, paddle boarding, it's huge on that. Um, it's overall, it's a fantastic city. And so why are you not there and you're in Berlin? I mean, like, what, what led you to Berlin and why, what, what's keeping you sticking around? For me, it's, it's the big question when I tell people I'm from San Diego. So for me, it's about being international. That's always been something I wanted for my career personally. I've had huge experience launching international markets, but it's different launching international markets from the United States versus actually moving and being international. It's just a whole new level um, of learning and of growth. So that's been extremely important to me. I would also say San Diego, although a great city, it's more of a biotech and science type of city. They have really great uh, biotechnology companies there. They're known for their oceanography. Um, I would say institutions there. Um, they have great golf. So anyone who's listening that's a golfer, they have some of the best golf courses in the world. But they're more of a biotech and life sciences type of city than they are uh, tech or SaaS or software. So, and, and Berlin, certainly in Europe, is really well known for its startup scene, um, also its clubbing scene uh, as well. Um, but um, I guess you're more into the startup scene, or I'm making an assumption here. Um, and um, a lot of SaaS companies in, in Berlin. So, you know, I think one of the top hubs in, uh, in, in Europe for that. Uh, so it seems like a, a, a good spot. Um, 
Uh, but what about marketing, though? So obviously, you, you, we've, we've heard that you know you've worked in big companies and, and, and prefer now working in the smaller ones. Uh, why did you choose this uh, career path in marketing through to you know becoming CMO? And uh, yeah, what is it about marketing that, that, that you love? I love people and I love figuring out how people tick and what motivates them to do certain actions. So I actually started my career in sales. I did the hardcore outbound sales back in the day in the United States. We actually had to knock on people's doors. So I call the original outbound, you know, selling, of course, it's transitioned since then. But I always had input for marketing. And I always said, you know, why are we positioning it this way? What's going on? And so somebody, of course, in their, you know, infinite wisdom said, why don't you take a look into marketing? And I did. And I just love the idea of matching positioning a want and need to consumers. And so for me, marketing is not just about selling, but it's about consumer research. It's about understanding, positioning, branding, all kinds of things. And I, I just absolutely love it. Yeah, I mean, actually, just on one of the things you mentioned, uh, I've got a podcast to record later today with um, uh, a couple of guys in, in, in the U.S. who, when I heard their story, when they started out, they told me that they had to, you know, go knocking door to door, right, to, to win business. And they actually won business this, this way. And now I know in, in the U.K. this was a thing. I don't, I'm not, I don't think it's a thing anymore. But it just kind of, like, made me kind of reflect a little bit in terms of, like, how outbound today or certainly like in, in Europe, I'm, I'm sure uh, moreover the people have got it a little bit easy, like kind of not hiding behind email, but a lot of outbound is, you know, done over email and just, you know, having, I, I don't know, uh, that drive or uh, whatever it is, the traits that you need to go like knocking door to door and kind of get, you know, I mean, you need some physicality there, but you need the mentality as well to you know, go knock on the door, speak to the receptionist, you know, try and get a meeting like there in person and sell the product. I mean, it's, it's brutal and amazing at the same time. And I think of it as the original boot camp for sales. If you're not tough going into that, you are tough coming out of it. When I first started doing it, they told me that, you know, to get your stripes, you have to be kicked out of so many offices, basically. And going door to door, they do kick you out. And you have to know, who to talk to, the whole you know repertoire of who the gatekeeper is, who the decision maker is, who the influencer is. And you have to pick that up extremely quickly while also me- mes- memorizing people's names because you're on site physically in front of people. And you're literally just going up to an office park, looking at the directory and making the rounds. And, you know, of course, this is the days before Salesforce was full blown and systems like HubSpot and sequencing and, you know, LinkedIn Sales Navigator. But it gives you those fundamental skills that I'm not quite clear, you know, the toughness uh, nowadays, which I think you're alluding to. Sometimes people just put sequences together and they say, okay, I did my sequences, that's it. Where in the original outbound sales, you kept going back physically over and over again. So I, I think there's some learnings from that. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, definitely when I, when I heard that, the story, and it's these guys at the company called uh, Evron, um, you know, I just thought, well, you can succeed at that. You know, they're likely to be a successful entrepreneur because they've certainly got the character traits, right, uh, uh, to, to do that. And also reflects, I mean, it's not, not um, in it, I, I've, I've never done that, but I, I sometimes think about, obviously, myself as an entrepreneur and what are the traits that maybe, have, you know, given me, uh, I don't know, the, the, uh, the, I don't know, the traits to succeed, Um and I look back and, you know, like, hey, my first ever job was in McDonald's for two years, and that was quite hard work, long shifts, right? Um, 
probably taught me a thing or two, uh, you, you know, upon re reflection. Uh, and then when I got into the executive sort of world, my, my first ever job was cold calling and having to do 100 calls a day to get to one yes, you, you know. And I did that for a year and, it's, you know, that, that, that was sort of like quite tough. But to be able to kind of get through that, um, you, you know, I think these are things that stand you in good stead for, uh, for the future, for sure. Um, and I guess, you, obviously, that you, you've seen, you've worked with these big U.S. companies, but you've also worked in the U.S. and, and Europe, uh, and I think Australia as well. Uh, um, and um, what, what's, the, what's the difference there? Do you see any difference between um, scale-ups and startups in, uh, across the geos? Yeah, huge. So in the United States, it's a very individualistic type of culture. So everybody is achieving for themselves, and it's ingrained into the culture. It's at the expense of team dynamics. So even if you look at companies like Microsoft under, I think, Steve Ballmer's leadership, they talked about the lost 10 years or the last generation because teams are infighting. You find a lot more of that in U.S. scale-ups because there's a lot more fiefdom building. There's more, it's more of a me, me, me mentality. It does have advantages because it pushes innovation and it pushes change at a rapid speed. And the speed of execution is a million times faster. But in, your, in European companies, what I've come to value is the idea of team consensus, not decision by consensus, but at least team consensus and team cohesion, team integration, more of a value for work-life balance. And my observation in Europe is that it's proof positive that you can have a balance between work and life and still be productive and a company can still be productive. Where in the United States, at least when I was working there, it was more of a mentality of you cannot take vacation. People were even using it as a badge of honor. I don't take vacation. Where in Europe, everybody would just be shocked. Like that just doesn't happen over here. So it's interesting in the dynamics of things. Oftentimes I find in Europe, a lot of European scale-ups want to be the best of Europe. And that's their goal. I want to be the biggest, you know, whichever SaaS company in Europe. Where in the United States, they have a different mentality. I want to rule the world. So it's a little bit different. In Australia, what I noticed is the tech ecosystem is still, I would say, more of its infancy stages. You do have bigger companies like Atlassian, like Canva, so these you know big kind of uh, unicorn-type companies. But the rest of the ecosystem is small, and from a cultural perspective, there's something called the tall poppy syndrome, where if you're the one that's achieving, the one that's advancing, they automatically want to cut you down. And I was warned about it when I moved there, but I didn't know much about it. And coming from the American culture where everybody wants to achieve and succeed, it was really interesting for me to witness how some of these things happen. So there's a profile to some of the way that the business is run. And then there's also this social overlay with each of these regions around the world, which of course has an impact. Uh, very cool. Um, and um, yeah, so I know we want to chat about uh, branding uh, today, but in, in particular, um, I mean, your, uh, your viewpoint is that B2B SaaS uh, branding has taken uh, a bit of a back seat. Um, so I'm curious to, to hear like, why you think that is. Um, uh, maybe we can kind of kick off with that. Yeah, so I mean, there's really an evolution over the last, I would say, five to 10 years. We've had data-driven marketing, and of course, with all of that, there's all the KPIs, and and there it is, B2B SaaS, because it was seen versus e-commerce as kind of the second child, so to speak, it was more about direct demand generation and direct customer acquisition and hardcore KPIs. And the thought process, at least five years ago, was, okay, we're selling B2B clients and B2B clients don't 
act like e-commerce or D2C clients. So we don't need to have the huge brand because we're just going to micro focus on product and product features and product optimizations. And it worked for a little while, but I think what we've seen now, especially in the past year, is this era of hypergrowth is over. The era of hypergrowth is over. It's all about sustainable and predictable revenue engines. And what B2B leaders are also realizing is that, for example, you know, we, we're in B2B, we're in SaaS, we have our phones, we have Netflix on our phones, Amazon, all of our shopping. We still understand what it means to be sold to, to have brand, to have positioning, and that matters to us. So B2B consumers are acting a lot more now like e-commerce or D2C consumers. And so that's why we're seeing this shift. We're also seeing because of the changes economically in the past year that companies are now looking for sustainable ways to grow. And the era of I call hyper-performance marketing and the era of hyper-demand generation where you see the graphs go like this up and down because you need to put in more capital and get more clients and it's not sustainable, that's changing. And people are now taking a second look and they're looking at things like brand now. It's a slower growth, but it's more sustainable. So uh, that at least is, is the overview of what I'm seeing taking place. So, so given we're in this era of uh, sustainable revenue growth, long may it last, but I, I suspect the era of hyper growth will come back at some point. Um, how do you build brand with you know, a tight budget? Well, I don't know, maybe tight budget is not fair, but you know, sustainably. What, what are your thoughts? What, what, what should those that are listening at the moment, and uh, again, let's... We, Predominantly, you know, an early stage sort of like SaaS founder. I'm, I'm sure there are many marketers listening as well. But if, if we're speaking to that audience and thinking about, okay, the, you know, the, the budgets are, are a little bit more, or the purse strings are a little bit more tightened, we've got to think about, you know, I don't know whether it's creative ways, but what are the ways to, to build brand sustainably? It really starts with the product market fit. And I think this has also been maybe a miss with a lot of companies because they're trying to get product market fit really fast and the first sales are usually founder led. And then because they're founder led, it's usually within the network. And then they think that they have traction, but they don't. And then they try to scale that really quickly without understanding the essence of the product market fit and how the product market fit matches to what I call brand identity. And brand identity is what do consumers feel and think about your brand? So I'll give you, you know, the huge example. We all know Apple or Nike. Everybody has an opinion. They've built their brand over many years. But these fundamental practices are what early stage scale ups need to be doing. And often what happens is through a series A stage, they're growing, growing, growing based off of what channels work for them immediately, immediate ROI. But then they've forgotten about, okay, who are we? And then they get to the stage where they're trying to scale. And then classic example, the sales team is on the proverbial video call or whichever way they're communicating with the client. They're giving a pitch and the client says, well, who are you? And that is one of the worst situations that you can be in. Because the company, they were trying to either scale too fast or for whatever reasons, they didn't take enough time to match the product market fit to at least the beginnings of a brand identity. And, you know, I'll say this with a caveat. It's unrealistic for a seed stage or a Series A company to throw huge amounts, you know, of money building a brand. But some of them miss it altogether or just skip that step. And it's a step that should not be missed because formulating your brand and brand identity means you have to go through all the necessary criteria. Who are we? What are our values? What do we stand for? How do we want consumers to perceive us? And what takeaway do we want consumers you know, to come away with? 
um, some research that was done last year that I had the opportunity to view was saying, oh, consumers now are voting with their wallets and they're voting in a way that they want companies, whether it's B2B or B2C, but it's the same. They're, they're really shopping now with companies that support their values and whatever that might be, you know, sustainability, how they treat their employees, all of this, but all of this is wrapped up in a brand essence and a brand ethos. One thing you, you mentioned about like the founder-led in sort of the early stages, right, which is, uh, I think, you know, pretty important and um, uh, made me sort of think about one example, which uh, I don't know if it's outdated now, you, you, you can tell me or not, but um, uh, I remember Intercom, so like the similar time when, when SaaS stock started, uh, like 2015, 2016, uh, Des uh, Trainer, uh, one of the co-founders of Intercom, and, and Owen McKay, uh, the, the CEO, um, they were, you know, posting uh, blog posts, right? You know, on a regular basis. I don't know if it was like many a week or, or, or what it was, but they created this like content machine, and they were, as founders, actually writing the blog posts, you know, kind of initially. Uh, and then Intercom, kind of a, a, as a product, and I don't know whether it's before they got PMF or, or not, suddenly had this like a bit of a fan base coming because of the content that they were creating, which again was kind of like founder-led, and people got to know Des and Owen and followed them on social media and they were building up their social media accounts and Des would have like 13,000 followers on Twitter, I don't know what it is now, that sort of thing, right? And they got people kind of bought into like, oh, Intercom's cool and we like, you know, the way that the founders speak and where these people, you know, we are kind of Intercom sort of thing. And I remember going to, they did like an Intercom tour as well on the back of now we've got an audience, <clears throat> let's invite them to, you know, an event that we're running. Um, and they had fans, you, you know, people were bought into the brand and they sort of built this moat. Now, today, 2023, should people be doing similar things or, or like what is the way to kind of like do it today if you're in that kind of early stage? Absolutely. And I would say it's interesting how we have more technology and tools today, but people are not utilizing them. So we have LinkedIn, people have followings, you have, you know, your GitHub, your Substack, all these different, you know, tools and community spaces but like you said, the two co-founders were really building their personal brands, but connecting it to the company brands and becoming thought leaders. And of course, creating their brand identity and ethos at the same time. And this is a main step that a lot of startup founders and CEOs, I don't see do as much or do as much as they could. Some of them are posting you know, articles and speaking at conferences and being a thought leader, but really tying it to the brand. This is something that I think is missing. And so at the beginning of our conversation where I'm saying, you know, B2B was seen as a second child, five years ago, this was not a thing, really, in B2B. People aren't doing it. You're seeing it catch up now. And I think you will, because as you know, B2B is more about, it's more about content. It's more about value. It's more about positioning. And what better way to do that than, you know, with brand? If we, if we could uh, make a call to, I don't know, not a call to arms. I mean, that sounds wrong, but, you know, like call to action. Uh, maybe it is a call to arms, but to the founders that are listening to this, that if they're if they're not doing anything really about either building personal brand or brand for the business, to do like one thing, you know, after listening to the podcast, uh, what what's a good tip? Would it, is it like, hey, start a podcast? Is it post on LinkedIn every day? I mean, obviously each company is is quite different, but if you were to kind of like give you know, one call to everybody and say, hey, look, you should start doing this. And, you know, if you do it right, it's going to pay off over time. My recommendation is to use your voice. So every founder and CEO has a voice. They founded their company for a reason. 
most people that found their companies, you know, are overcoming a ton of adversity to found their companies and to raise capital. So use your voice and whichever medium that works for you, if it's giving panel sessions, if it's being on the news, if it's writing articles, doing a content blog, like you said, it depends on the type of company and what they're selling and, you know, the medium, but you have a voice and use it. And that's the most important thing. And what I find, especially in early stage, so your seed series A, and then usually it's series B, they start to catch on a little bit more because they're saying, hey, we need to really scale. But it's best done at the series A level because even think on a marketing channel perspective, you can own your space, you can own SEO, you can really create an engine. And to me, the brand building, it's a gift that keeps giving back. It's slower at the beginning, but like compounding interest, it will keep giving back over time. So my advice for founders and CEOs watching this is you have a voice, use it, start figuring out which channels work for you and really start building that brand. It will pay off over time. Yeah. Um, an example of that is somebody I think is doing it quite well, uh, is a gentleman called Chris Walker. Um, do you know, Chris, I, the name of the company is escaping me despite the fact he spoke at Sastock USA, uh, recently. But um, I think if you look on LinkedIn, Chris Walker, uh, I, I think he's been posting every day for a number of years now and is getting hundreds of thousands of views per post, right? And talking specifically about revenue attribution and kind of owning that space and definitely using his own voice and repurposing a lot of content and podcasts and when he's talking at events, etc., to um, <clears throat> to get that across and I think the business is, is doing very well, uh, you know, off the back of that. So um, definitely one example for, for people to, to check out. Um, speaking of LinkedIn, <clears throat> as a, um, and, and sorry, maybe I need to have a sip of water in a minute, but uh, yeah, speaking of LinkedIn, what are your thoughts in terms of this, you know, as a channel, specifically in B2B, um, I guess compared to the, so, the things, there's so many channels out there, right? Where we talk about using your voice, like where is a really good place to start? The feeling is that you know LinkedIn could be uh, this place. Although I had um, chatting with somebody actually earlier today who who felt like LinkedIn was a little bit kind of awkward, a bit of like look at me type thing, and Twitter was a bit more natural, like you know people just being themselves. But um, I, I don't know. The feeling is like B two B. This is probably the the place where you might sort of gravitate if you were going to start to post using your voice about your company, but. What are your thoughts? You know, any good examples that you see there? Of, you know, market leaders like uh, using that uh, platform and uh, yeah, I guess getting their brand out there. Yeah, so definitely, I would say Twitter not as much. Twitter is usually for politicians, celebrities. Um, you know, now that Elon Musk has taken over, he's got those tags on the news ones. You know, government-sponsored media, all kinds of chaos going on. Over on Twitter, I would definitely say LinkedIn is the best place at the moment for B2B SaaS companies because you can use that channel not only on the targeting side, like you can target titles, you can target industries, so it is the best for B2B. But as far as the promotion of your company or if you're a founder CEO, you can. it's a platform where you can tell your story. And it, it's something that is more difficult to do on Twitter, frankly. On LinkedIn better videos, you can have the scrolling features that go back and forth. Um, you can you know, tag so many different com uh, companies more, you know, in the comments. So I just think it's a better arena. And especially in business, more people now are just trained, uh, you know, societally trained to go to LinkedIn. So I would say LinkedIn, 
But I, I don't want to overlook things like podcasts, webinars, panel discussions. These are also important you know, mediums for founders and CEOs to use their voice, to be heard, to be considered as a thought leader in their space. So these mediums are important as well, but LinkedIn, 100%. What about TikTok? The thoughts on, on, on that one for B2B at the moment? I have mixed feelings. Uh, TikTok has not yet established itself as what it really is versus Instagram. Instagram established itself, you know, pictures, people use it for travel, restaurants, this kind of thing. So it's very clear what you're going to get when you go on Instagram. TikTok is still in a phase where it's all over the place, frankly. Um, for D2C or e-commerce, 100%, absolutely. If your business is doing fashion, cosmetics, what have you, 100%. But if you're a B2B software and you're doing something like project management, think of like a monday.com or something, not clear yet on how effective TikTok will be. It doesn't mean that you can't try it, but not quite clear how effective. Also in the United States, I'm sure you've heard a lot of legislation on them trying to ban it and different states trying to take it out. So I'm not sure politically, uh, you know, how much longer it will be there or what kind of restrictions there will be. If you're in Europe, it's still here, you know, for now. So I would just say try it, but tread with caution if you're in B2B. I'm not clear that that it's the winner yet. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've definitely, from my own sort of personal use, and I, I, uh, I plugged myself here, but... Uh, I'm on TikTok, and but at the moment I'm mostly kind of repurposing like interesting clips from the podcast, and uh, probably need to have a slightly different strategy. And you know, I'm testing experiments and seeing like uh, where it will go. But uh, uh, I'm seeing a lot of SaaS companies, and I mean, off the top of my head, ClickUp and Deal are kind of on there and on my feed, and uh, you know, doing some sort of interesting stuff there, and you know, certainly some individuals. But you're right; it's all sorts of content and. Um, but I, I guess if you, you've got your, like, you, you know, your, your, the algorithm picks what you're kind of interested in. And if you've got a mix of business, a mix of, you know, non-business kind of coming in and you do your, your 30 minutes or, or whatever of doom scrolling to get your uh, dopamine hits and um, but hopefully, you know, learn something with, uh, you know, some small clips of, uh, of business. But uh, to your point, yes, obviously it looks like it could have issues with the U.S. certainly. Uh, it is banned in the India, uh, which I, um, you know, somebody reached out to me and said, hey, why don't you repurpose your podcast? Um, and I said, oh, I'm doing it. Like, it's on TikTok. And they're like, oh, we didn't know because we actually, you know, we can't access it in, in, in India. So uh, definitely these are uh, good considerations uh, uh, to have. Um, uh, but look, I think I guess moving on uh, a little bit from Brandon to the quickish fire round, uh, just conscious of time. Um Question. So what one thing has moved the needle the most for you in your career? Being fearless. So going for it. A lot of people have dreams of success or just their goals in life, but it's actually interesting. More people are, for, are afraid of success than they are of failure. So they actually won't go towards their dreams. They won't take that jump. I remember when I first moved to Australia years ago, people thought they're like, what are you doing? And how are you going to live there? And you're selling your car and you're selling. I'm like, well, it's going to be the same way that everyone else lives down there and they're successful. It'll be fine. You know, and once I made that move, then people are like, Oh, how'd you do it? So it's, it's just getting rid of that fear will actually get you further in life and going for it. I like that. Um, what's the best advice you've ever received? It's the same thing I tell to other people, um, work on yourself and get your inner strength. 
It's something they don't teach in business school or any school, frankly. Um, work on your inner strength. You're going to need it. As you move forward as an executive, as a founder, as a CEO, whoever is listening, you're going to face so many different challenges and adversities and you know things are going to be coming at you all sorts of different ways. The best thing you can do is to gather your own inner strength and resilience. Uh, that's the best thing, I think, one of the best skills that they don't teach. Uh, what's the biggest failure you've made and lesson learned? Ooh, um, on the flip side to not believe in myself. I would say it was probably the biggest failure and to take other people's opinions and internalize them for myself. That is the biggest failure because I think only you can decide where you want to go. And once you get over that and once you decide, you know, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing. um, The field is just completely open for you. So Uh, what's the hardest thing about building brand in 2023? Making sure that it's authentic and realistic. A lot of times I see brand building, it's celebrities. I'm sure you've seen commercials and things, just put a celebrity on there and you have a brand and it'll sell. What really resonates to me and to others nowadays is realistic type of scenarios with real people. So there are examples of brands that, you know, actually put on teenage girls who were struggling with identity because the cosmetic industry or the fashion industry, and that resonated with people. I think it was Maltese's that did a postpartum depression, you know, type of, you know, campaign and people are resonating. There's another company that talked about how men were struggling, you know, either showing strength in the workplace or maybe even, you know, showing kindness in the workplace. Um, People struggling with mental health and depression. These types of things are resonating with people because they're authentic and they're real. So I would just say uh, make it authentic. Well, uh, you you can choose one or both here, um, favorite books on brand and for founders, but you could choose one or two. For me, brand is about storytelling and about relating. So whenever people ask me about business books, I actually don't recommend typical business books because the philosophy changes every year. My favorite business book of all time is actually The Alchemist. (laughs) So it's fantastic storytelling And it's about finding your inner self, overcoming challenges, all the right skills that you need, you know, for business. And yeah, one of the best stories, I think, of all time. Cool. Very good. Yeah. Uh, Been a long time since I read it, but um, I do remember uh, probably almost getting it done in, you know, one or or two sittings. So it's a a, a great story. And the first time that we've had somebody recommend that um, as a certain favorite business book, but for your reasons, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, uh, It's a great stuff. Well, and we know, and we, we obviously can't talk about it. Well, I don't know because you won't tell me, but you've got uh, a new gig uh, uh, lined up. So you, you will be CMO or see something, uh, oh, you, you know, in the, in the near future. So we'll keep our eyes open uh, uh, for that. Um, shame we couldn't break the news first here on the, on the SaaS Revolution show. Uh, but if people want to find you online, where, where can they reach out? And also, before I forget, uh, the rumours are, and I think the rumours are true, um, that you are uh, coming to Dublin in October for SASDOC 2023. You're going to be, every year we just keep improving SASDOC. It's going to be the best one yet. Uh, so delighted to have you come over. Uh, any, it's a little bit early-ish, but thoughts on what you might be speaking about, what you're looking forward to, and then let's answer that one, and then where people can find you uh, online if they want to reach out. Sure, yeah, I'm super excited uh, to be at SASDOC this year in October in Dublin. 
So there's a couple of different topics. So I don't know if it'll be more deep diving on brand, but certainly it's going to be, um, you know, B2B, what moves the needle, growth and revenue. So we'll be solidifying that shortly. And then, you know, how people can find me, LinkedIn, of course, people can find me on LinkedIn. Feel free to send me a note and I'll be happy to chat with you. Very cool. Well, Angeli Mullins, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the SaaS Revolution Show today, uh, sharing with the SaaS.com community. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to meeting in person at SaaS.com 2023 in Dublin. It's the 16th to the 18th of October. Um, so we'll see you there. Um, but uh, yeah, Comic to Publish Podcast. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SaaSdoc conferences around the world. Want exclusive SaaS content and actionable insights to grow your SaaS? Join our community of over 36,000 SaaS founders at sasdoc.com.